everybody's presence today, I'll invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. Ephesians chapter 3. I just want to take a look at a, a passage that's found in this, in this chapter for a few minutes. don't want to make a extensive, uh, extensive introductory remarks, but uh, a few might be in order. Paul considered himself especially blessed. He, he considered himself to be in a, a privileged position that God had bestowed a great blessing on him when God chose him to preach the saving message of Jesus to the world. This passage will bring that out, that just how privileged Paul considered himself to be because God had given him that task. Paul understood full well where he had come from, that he had persecuted the church, that he was an enemy of the cross of Christ, and yet God selected him, chose him especially to be the one, to be the agent through whom many, 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 many people would come to hear about the cross and, and, and Christ the Savior. And so he discusses his work in this particular passage and what he thought about that work. He says that he was uh, made a minister of the, of the mystery of Christ in verse 7. He mentions the gospel in verse 6 and then verse 7, of which I was made a minister, and then look at the next phrase, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. God made me a minister, a servant, preaching the gospel. That was His gift to me, according to the gift of His grace. And so, it wasn't a, a task that he had to do against his will, Paul thought, this is a great blessing for God to pick me to be the one through whom these people will hear the gospel. And he also says it's according to the work of his power, uh, which was uh, uh, given to me uh, in verse 8, given to me the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And so again, this grace was given to me, this gift was given to me to preach the gospel. It's a privilege to preach the gospel. I know it's a, it's a daunting task. And just about everybody who stands in this place in the very beginning will talk about how sobering it is, how serious it is to teach the gospel and to preach the gospel. You want to preach it as effectively as you know how. You want to do as good a job as you can. You know, you want to do it as faithfully as you can. But it's a privilege. It's a gift. It's God's grace for us to be in a position to teach others the gospel. Whether we stand in a pulpit like this or behind a lectern teaching a class or sitting across someone's kitchen table or just talking to them as the day goes by, that is God's gift to us to have those opportunities. And so in verse 8, to me, the very least of all the saints, we understand why he describes himself in that way. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. And so I just want to break that passage down just a little bit.
before we get into the heart of the study today. Paul says his work consists of two things. First of all, his work consisted of preaching the unfathomable riches of Christ. Now that's a, a typically Paul's statement, isn't it? It would be enough to say that my work consists of preaching Christ. That would be sufficient, wouldn't it? But Paul goes beyond that. I'm preaching the riches of Christ, the blessings of Christ, the opportunities in Christ, what Christ has accomplished in His death on the cross. He describes as riches. I preach the riches of Christ. But he goes even further than that, doesn't he? I preach the unfathomable riches of Christ, the blessings, the opportunities, the accomplishments of the gospel cannot be fully measured or comprehended. That's the idea conveyed by the word unfathomable. You, you just can't measure, you can't quantify. You, we can't comprehend how immense, how vast the riches of Christ are. And it's my privilege, Paul says, to share that with those who have never heard it before, especially the Gentiles. And so that was the, how he describes his work. His work consists also of bringing to light the administration of the mystery. Now, the mystery of Christ we can think of in terms as the, the plan of salvation, God's plan to redeem man, God's plan to bring sinful men and women back into fellowship with Him. And all men and women, regardless of Jew or Gentile, God's plan, as He eventually revealed and unfolded, was to bring all people, Jew or Gentile, into fellowship with Himself. And so Paul says, it's my work to bring to light, to make people aware of, to inform them of how God administered this plan through the ages, how He carried it out, how He worked it out. And so I can sit down and with someone one-on-one, -on -one, or I can teach a group of people, and I can take from the Scriptures, and I can show them how God has carried out and administered this plan for the whole world, but also for your life. I want to talk about how God has administered or worked out His plan for you in the work of Christ, in the gospel, in the cross. There's a purpose in all of this, Paul says. Purpose and result are a little bit hard to distinguish sometimes. If we do thing for a, something for a purpose, we're hoping to bring about a certain result. And so purpose and result sometimes kind of blend together, and so that's why I've got it written the way that I do. Why does Paul do this? Why is he doing this work? So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church. The manifold wisdom of God, the multifaceted wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is seen in all sorts of ways, all different aspects to the wisdom of God. And so I want people to see how deep and how rich the wisdom of God is, how inexpressible it is, how manifold it is. And that is seen, Paul says, in the church. And in this particular passage, Paul doesn't say so that other people can see it. I want the powers and the authorities in heavenly places to see the wisdom of God as they look at the church. That's a pretty amazing statement, isn't it? That as these heavenly beings, heavenly powers, heavenly authority, as they consider God and God's wisdom, they can look at the church and they can see God's wisdom manifested there. 
Pretty impressive. And then finally he says, this was according to God's eternal purpose. You see, the church and expressing his manifold wisdom in the church, that, that wasn't uh, kind of a, a, a haphazard, um, a off the cuff, sort of spontaneous idea that God had one day. That's his eternal purpose. That's what he was meant to bring about, or he, his intent was to bring that about even through eternity. And so, quite an amazing statement, isn't it? Now, I want to focus on that middle part, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church. How does the church manifest the manifold wisdom of God? How does the church display the multifaceted wisdom of God? Well, let's talk a little bit about the church first and talk about what the church is. In the New Testament, the church is always people, always people. The church is not the building. Sometimes people use it in that way. Well, I'm going to go, I'm going to go down to the church and cut the grass, you know, whatever. But that's not the way it's used in the New Testament. In fact, when I was growing up, and this might be true of you as well, in our house, we were never allowed, we're discouraged, maybe that would be a better way to say it. We were strongly discouraged uh, using the church in that way. The word church to refer to the bill, it just wasn't, it just wasn't used that way. We go to the church building, or the church's building, but church is always people. The church is not an institution apart from the people. In the New Testament, the church is always the people. It consists of disciples of Jesus. The church is not a human, uh, it's not of human origin, it's not a human construct. I think that's what people think sometimes. When Jesus came into the world, He did some teaching, people began to follow that, and eventually they developed this church. Now, that, that's, not, that's not how the church developed. It's of divine origin. You remember Jesus in Matthew 16 says, I will build my church. I will build a church. I will build my church. Matthew 16 and verse 18. It's described in various places, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, for example, as the church of God. In that particular place, Paul addresses the church of God at Corinth. It belongs to God. The church is a group of people who belong to God, always people who belong to God. In Romans 16 and verse 16, the churches of Christ, talking about local churches, local congregations, the churches of Christ salute you. It's the same group of people, isn't it? It's not that the church of God is one group and the church of Christ is a different group. Just a, two different ways of describing the same group of people. These belong to God. They also belong to Christ. They are of God and of Christ. It was purchased with Christ's blood. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, the elders at Ephesus were to shepherd the flock of God, which was purchased with His blood. So it's purchased, it belongs to Him. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23, Christ is the Savior of the body. The body is the church, of course, and so Christ is the Savior of the body. In fact, that's what the church is. It's the body of people that have been saved by Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, uh, Christ is the head of the church. He's been given head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him that fills all in all. And so, the church is not a human construct. 
hasn't developed by human effort. It's not of human origin. It is of divine origin. I will build my church, Jesus says. It's the church of God. It's the church of Christ. It's purchased with the blood of Christ. Christ is its Savior. It's governed by Christ. In fact, any human, any religious organization of human origin is dispensable. We can do away with it. If you have a religious organization of human origin, you can do away with that. It's not necessary. It's dispensable. In fact, if it doesn't rest on Scripture, it ought to be dispensed with. God's eternal purpose was to bring the church into existence. We saw that just a moment ago, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 11. So no wonder God's wisdom is seen in it if it's been His purpose all along throughout eternity to bring this group of people into existence through Christ. Of course we're going to see His wisdom in it. If we are members of the church, it's our privilege then to be participants in a body of divine origin. God's wisdom is displayed through us. It's always people, isn't it? The church is where God's wisdom is displayed. Now God's wisdom is displayed in His creation, but this passage emphasizes God's wisdom being manifested in the, in the church. That's us. Now, we might not do a very good job of it sometimes, <laughs> I suppose. But we ought to live in a way and conduct ourselves in a way so that God's wisdom can be seen in us. I just want to stay in the book of Ephesians. I just want to draw out a few areas, a few things discussed here in the book of Ephesians, in which we can see the wisdom of God being manifested in the church. The first one of these is in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. God's wisdom is seen in His choosing before the world began who would be saved. That's what this passage says, that God chose before the world began who would be saved. Let's read it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. And so God has chosen those in Christ. God chose even before the world began those in Christ would be saved. He, he made that determination long, long ago. As I said a moment ago, it's not as though the world began and events began to unfold and things began to happen. And, and then God said, well, you know, I didn't anticipate that. What am I going to do? In eternity, before the foundation of the world, God already determined that those in Christ would be saved. You know, only an all-wise God could predetermine who would be saved and bring that about according to His will. Human beings can't do that. I can't do that. You, none of us really can do that. <laughs> can say, look into the future and say, now this is how things are going to go, and this is what I'm going to do, and I'm, I'm going to accomplish it. As, as, as wise as we may be, as influential as we may be, as controlling as we may be, as powerful as we may be, we cannot determine the outcome of much of anything, really. We know the old line, the best laid plans of mice and men go oft awry. So, 
well, I have a plan B. <laughs> better get you a plan B. If that doesn't work out, you better be ready for that. Or maybe sometimes we might even have a plan C. <laughs> and then we might even have to alter that from time to time. We, we just can't do this. We can't do what God can do. Determine beforehand what's going to happen and then have that happen according to His will. You know, the book of Isaiah, we studied Isaiah recently. Look at a, a couple of passages from Isaiah. Isaiah 42 and verse 9. Behold, the for, former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen before it happens. In chapter 44 as well, or rather, let's turn over to chapter 46 and verse 10. Chapter 46 and verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. At the end of verse 11, Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I planned it, surely I will do it. In the passage before us in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says that God has chosen, He's predestined certain people to be saved, those who are in Christ. That's not the only passage that uses this kind of terminology. In Romans chapter 8, for example, and in verse 28, says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love the Lord, to those who are called according to His purpose. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. These whom He predestined, He called. These whom He called, He justified. These whom He justified, He glorified. You see, the same kind of terminology, predestined. And, and so this idea of God predestining certain ones to be saved, that's a biblical idea. Now, the question is, who did He predestine? Arbitrarily? Just predestined this one, arbitrarily that one, no, that one, yes. Or, no, no. Study of the Bible reveals that's not how God predestined us to be saved. He predestined those who are in Christ. And we have the free will then to enter into Christ or not. But he's already made the decision. Those in Christ are going to be saved. Now, are you in Christ? Now, you can decide that. I've got a, uh, the Reeds gave me uh, a Freddie Freeman bobblehead. Got a bobble, Freddie Freeman bobblehead he's, when he was a member of the Braves. Never been out of the box. And so, uh, he plays for the Dodgers now, so uh, a good Braves fan might pay a little bit of money for that. So, every now and then, in a Major League Baseball game, minor league game, they'll have a, a gift night like that. It'll be predetermined. The first 10,000 fans who come to the gate are going to get a Freddie Freeman bobblehead or something like that. See, they've predetermined who's going to get the gift. And I might think, you know, I really want that bobblehead. I'm going to go early, make sure I'm in that group. Or I might say, you know, I've already got one of those. I don't need that anymore. I really don't want him, not that interested. So I, I'm going to get there just whenever I want. And, and so, you see, the, the determination who's going to get the gift has already been made. But in a way that it doesn't take away from or detract or, or uh, neutralize our free will. And so God has predestined some to be saved, but He doesn't do it arbitrarily or contrary to our free will. Only an all-wise God can do that, right? And so we can see the wisdom of God. We can see the power of God and the wisdom of God. In this statement, before the world began, God chose those in Christ to be saved. That's in the church. 
God's people are redeemed by the blood of Christ. We can see God's wisdom in that. Scripture refers in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, to that which has not entered into the heart of man. Talking about the gospel and talking about the cross and the death of Jesus, that there are things that had not entered into the heart of man, the crucifixion of Christ being one of those. And so God's plan to save men and women through the cross was foolishness to some, but it's the wisdom and power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I'll set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has, God not, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And then verse 24, to those who are the called, both to Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross is the wisdom of God. Now there are people who believe that the cross and the idea of blood atonement is barbaric and, and primitive. But you see, God has chosen to save through this foolishness. Blood has always played a vital role in atoning for sin. If you go back to the book of Leviticus and read about the sacrifices, the animal sacrifices that were made under the Old Covenant to atone for sin, you can just see how much blood was involved. In Leviticus chapter 4, we read about the sin offering. And there are sin offerings made for the priest and for the leaders of the people and the whole congregation. But a common person who sinned could offer a sin offering. And so he was to bring his animal to the priest. And verse 30 says, The priest shall take some of its blood with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering. All the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar and so forth. And so there's a lot of blood. Dipping your hand in blood and smearing it on the horns of the altar, taking blood and pouring it out, splashing up on and so, and so blood has always been a vital element in atoning for sin. On the day of atonement, the high priest made atonement for himself and his family, the whole sanctuary, the tent of meeting, the altar, the priest, the people, all with blood. You know, there are people who even see blood involved in the first sin. Remember, although it's not brought out explicitly, Adam and Eve sinned. They attempted to make coverings for themselves, didn't work out very well. And so God made clothing from the skins of animals. So some people even see the shedding of blood playing a vital role in on that occasion as well. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Again, that's foolishness to some people. <laughs> but you see, God has chosen in His wisdom to save us through foolish things. The New Testament emphasizes atonement through the blood of Christ. In instituting the Lord's Supper in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus takes the cup and He says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He is the propitiation in His blood. Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, we are redeemed by the blood 
of Christ. Over and over again in the New Testament, the blood of Christ is emphasized. If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of His Son cleanses us from all sins. And so again, in His wisdom, God chose the foolish things, so that our faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do you see why God chose the foolish things? So that our salvation, our hope, our confidence, is not in what we consider wise. So God has chosen foolish things, so that our hope and our confidence will be in His power and not in our own. You know, in the shedding of blood, interesting thing about that, Leviticus chapter 17 tells Israel not to eat of the blood because the life is in the blood. And so when the blood is shed, when the blood is given in sacrifice, a life is given and taken, kind of an exchange, a substitution is taking place. That life is offered and taken for the life, the spiritual life, of the one who receives the benefit of the offering. We can see God's wisdom in that, can't we? Here's a third area in the book of Ephesians where we can see the wisdom of God. Adversaries are united in peace in the church. And so, that the church was in God's mind. He, he selected those in Christ to be especially His people. That's, that's the church. Uh, we see God's wisdom in how people enter into the church through the blood of Christ. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, adversaries are brought together in the church. The ancient world was a deeply divided place. Religiously, there was Jew and everybody else. You know, that's kind of two divisions, Jew and everybody else. Neither group wanted very much to do with the other. And we can see that contempt in some passages. Remember when David went out to fight Goliath? He talked about this, un you let this uncircumcised Philistine do this, you know, Talk to you like that? And so you can kind of see that resentment toward those who are not circumcised. You see it in Ephesians chapter 2 as well, verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision. Now I don't think that's a term of endearment from the Jews. You know, bless their heart, those Gentiles uncircumcised. No, I don't think that's the way they meant it. The you're not going to associate with those uncircumcised people, are you? That's more like it. By the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, he Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself He might make the two one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. In the church you have groups that don't like each other. <laughs> They're antagonistic toward each other, brought together in one body in peace. That's because they love the cross more than they hate each other. You know? <laughs> and so they're focused on the cross. They're focused on the gospel. 
more than they're focused on their dislike for each other. And so those kind of differences melt away in the church. Is the world today any less divided than it was then? Think of all the ways we are divided. Yet in Christ, all those things that divide us are resolved. As I watch the news, and maybe you're like this as well, it just seems to me that many people in the world are looking for a place where male, female, black, brown, white, rich, poor, different political positions can live and exist and work together in peace. We're looking for a place. We're trying to create a place where all of these things can be resolved and we can live and work in peace. The good news is it's already here. That place is already here. It's been here for 2,000 years where all these differences are resolved or dissolved and we can get together and work together and worship together as one in love. That place is the church of Jesus Christ. The issues are resolved when we look at things that are not seen rather than those that are seen. Those things are resolved when we set our minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. Those things are resolved when we walk together in love, taking thought of others. And as Philippians chapter 2 says, considering others as better than ourselves. Again, we do this imperfectly, not to make an excuse, just to observe the reality of the situation. So sometimes divisive issues rear their ugly heads among us. But this is the goal. And we ought to do it better than our worldly counterparts. The world should see the church and think, how do y'all do it? How do you achieve such unity? How can you have such a diverse group of people all in one body, and yet, and yet you are one? We see the wisdom of God is at work in the church. And when people see it, they can see, not, not us, but Him. His wisdom, His power. And then finally, the last point I want to make is we see the wisdom of God in the life that He would have us live, who would have us as members of the church live. The world lives according to its own whims. It pursues self-indulgence and excess. Whatever pleases it at the moment, whatever feels right for me, whatever is right in our own eyes. And the result is, if you look around at the world, since an absolute moral standard has been deconstructed, you know, it's kind of been taken apart, what do we find in the world? Dissatisfaction, unhappiness, depression, frustration, suspicion, untrustworthiness, unkindness, violence, moral collapse, vanity. You see, the wisdom of God is seen in the lifestyle He would have His church lead. See that in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15 and chapter 4, verse 17. This I say, affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles work in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you didn't learn Christ in this way. He goes on to explain that in their ignorance, those outside the body of Christ pursue sensuality and greed and impurity and deceitful desires. But those in the church, those in Christ, pursue righteousness and holiness 
and truth. See that in verse 24, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. He goes on to explain that, you see, in the church, we put aside lying and speak truth to one another, verse 25. And so you see, in the church, there is dependability and trustworthiness in truth. In verse 26, see those in the church, they control their anger. And so they're not given to the errors produced by impulsive wrath or anger. Get mad at you, do some or say, no, no. Not in the church, see, we're not given to that because we've put aside anger. In verse 28, those in Christ work hard doing good, not only to provide for themselves, but so that they can share with others who have need. And so, you see, in the church you have people who are not just thinking of self and increasing their own coffers, but I'm working, I'm doing something good, not stealing, I'm working what's good with my own hands so that I can have and my family can have and, and maybe I'll have enough to share with some others as well. And then verse 29, those in Christ control their speech, avoiding what's corrupt and speaking what builds up. Those in Christ rise above obscene, profane, dirty, nasty talk. Instead, they're positive influence. You see, we're speaking that which uh, is good for edifying, positive influence, building people up, those who that uh, we, we come into contact with. That's a great way to live, isn't it? <laughs> That's a far superior way to live than living in ignorance, pursuing lust and deceitful desires. God in His wisdom has established this life for us. He's already determined, this is how my people are going to live the best of all possible lives. And so, how is the wisdom of God manifested in the church? Well, in all sorts of ways. We've just drawn out of Ephesians this four things here. You can see it that, that the church was the eternal plan of God, that He set the, what He had in His mind in motion and accomplished the end result that those in Christ would belong to Him. Now, He's done it in what the world considers a foolish way through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. But see, we know that what's accomplished by the power of God, not the wisdom of men. And in this church, people who are normally adversarial toward each other, oh, resolve all their differences and work together and live together in Christ, in peace. And we live a great life, the best of all possible lives. And we're a benefit, not a detriment to those around us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together and to worship together today. We're thankful that you've revealed your word to us that we can look into it and we can see what you would have us to know. And Father, we pray that as we, from day to day, from week to week, do that, that we open your word and we read from it and study from it, that you'll open our eyes and that we'll see the wonderful things that are contained in it. Father, help us to understand that we are your people, the church, the, the, the body of Christ, that we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Help us, Father, to be focused on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, and work together and live together as one and accomplish your will and your work. Help us, Father, to live the life that you've set for us to live. And may people see that lifestyle and be drawn to you by the light that we shine. 
Father, we know that we represent you, that we represent you imperfectly. We're thankful that you're patient with us and long-suffering with us. But help us to be mindful that we, the church, that we are to display your wisdom to the world around us and even to those in heavenly places so that they might see your wisdom in us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.